Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you are going to hear part six of my book, God in the Frontier. Just a few housekeeping items before we get into it. First is that part six is a continuation on my chapter on spiritualism, which I began in part five. So while all of my chapters do have some connections, this particular part is not going to make as much sense if you don't listen to part five first. So I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that. I will also be covering my next chapter because it is a little shorter in this part, my chapter on the Chautauqua Institution. Now that we've got those things out of the way, I also want to use this time to talk about a couple of things because I don't mention them in my book, yet I don't want to go without mentioning them at all. The first is that in this part of my chapter on spiritualism, I'm going to talk about maybe my most favorite character in all of these stories, and that is Harry Houdini, the magician. And I'm not going to spoil what you're about to hear, but what I find truly admirable about Harry Houdini is how he uses his role as a magician to understand how he has a responsibility to help the general public understand where deception begins and reality ends. And he has some great examples of this. And it made me think a little bit about magicians in general and how there is a culture in the magician community, just like how they're not supposed to reveal a trick. They also have a public duty, which I think all of us in an area of expertise do. And while a lot of people will dismiss a magician for being someone who is just there to entertain, they have a very serious responsibility of helping people understand the role of deception in society. And I think other magicians like James Randi, who, if you don't see Harry Houdini written all over him by the end of this podcast, I'd be surprised. Or magicians even like Penn and Teller have dedicated a lot of their time in helping the general public understand when deception comes into play. I just thought that was neat and wanted to touch on that before I got into this. The other thing I wanted to talk about is going to relate to my next chapter, which is also in this part on the Chautauqua Institution. I don't know when exactly I'm going to be releasing this, but not too long ago was the attack on Selman Rushdie at the Chautauqua Institution, and that gained international attention. Rushdie has lived a life where he has had to be constantly aware of attacks on him by Muslim fanaticists. And what I think is missing from the news coverage of his attack, and currently as I'm recording this, he's in the hospital recovering with some pretty serious injuries, 
The thing that I think is missing from the national conversation about this attack is the role of the Chautauqua Institution, where Rushdie was speaking, as how it is supposed to bridge these differences and gaps between religion. And I think my chapter on the Chautauqua Institution really brings that to light. And when you know this history of the Chautauqua Institution, this wasn't just a random hall that he gave a speech in. The Chautauqua Institution has a storied history. And so I think it's important to keep in context the mission and motivation of the Chautauqua Institution and how the attack on Rushdie was more powerful than just a random attack because of the location of where it took place. And I hope that in the future, further talks can occur at the Chautauqua Institution without violence, because religious differences shouldn't make us become violent towards one another. And so now that I got those things out of the way, I will bring us right into it. Please Remember, feel free to donate if you are enjoying this series and you can get a PDF copy of my book. And with that, let's do it. All right. This is part six in God in the Frontier. Chapter six, part seven. Houdini and the Art of Deception Harry Houdini, perhaps the world's most famous magician, was a friend and admirer of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Despite this, he felt compelled to expose the fraud rampant within spiritualism, or, as Houdini believed, went as far as to define spiritualism. In 1924, Houdini wrote an entire book debunking spiritualism entitled A Magician Among Spirits. Mentioning Conan Doyle by name, he makes it clear that it wasn't his purpose to debunk spiritualism for the sake of it, and that he genuinely wished to experience the real thing, much like Eleanor Sidgwick. He was openly religious and believed wholeheartedly in the afterlife, and he dearly wished he could contact his mother one last time since her passing. Unsurprisingly, it was his mother's passing that largely became the reason Houdini turned his attention to spiritualism in the first place. In his book, he goes into extensive detail into how he did everything in his power to ensure that he was open and receptive for the medium in order to reach either of his deceased parents. But then Houdini brings up how his life's work had been in the art of magic and deception, the ability to baffle the minds of large groups without them having the slightest idea of what had actually transpired. Being well-versed in illusion, he felt compelled to expose fraudulent spiritualism where he detected it. Over and over, he was able to recreate the exact methods used by each of the mediums he encountered. He made compacts with friends and family to contact one another after their death for another level of verification. 
He even made one of these agreements with a friend right before the friend's terminal surgery. Yet none of the mediums were ever able to communicate the agreed-upon messages Houdini made with any of these lost partners, and so he subsequently denounced them as frauds. Houdini defined himself as a skeptic. Today, spiritualists welcome skeptics. The largest spiritualist community in the world is found in Lilydale, New York, in the western region of the Burned Over District, about an hour's drive southwest of Buffalo. The lands of New York directly west of Buffalo have always been remote, and so the 19th century homes nestled along the three small lakes in Lilydale are reminiscent of a time long past. Lilydale is different from most of the other towns around it, because each summer they open their gates to over 30,000 visitors, all eager to get face time with some of the world's most revered spiritualists. Forming at the height of the spiritualist movement in the 1800s, the Lilydale Assembly had set the bar for quality spiritualist mediums ever since. To become a genuine Lilydale medium, an applicant must first prove their abilities to the Assembly's liking, a secret process regularly described as rigorous. Even after they become official, they still need to prove themselves to the public, because the Lilydale Assembly also alleges that enough unsatisfied clients would be cause for their removal. So, a medium's credibility is decided between a combination of assembly and customer approval. Articles, books, and documentaries, including one done by HBO, have all taken a closer look at Lilydale. Although at first it has the appearance of a quaint sleepy village, it is alive with activity as large group and private events happen across the town daily, like a spiritualism amusement park. There's a fairy path and a labyrinth, a pet cemetery and a healing temple, a beach and gardens butterfly releases, healing events, and historical events are all regularly taking place. Often, people can be seen gathered around the inspiration stump for a public performance of a medium reading. One of the mediums described the area surrounding the stump as a healing vortex. The HBO documentary and other articles quote the mediums of Lilydale as encouraging skeptics like Harry Houdini. Even more, they are understanding. They acknowledge that nobody should believe without feeling confident in the truth of spiritualism, and they just encourage people to try it for themselves, only if they want. And that is exactly what nearly every story and article reporting on Lilydale does. They follow somebody's journey experiencing spiritualism, and oftentimes the individuals being followed are pleased with their experience. But what makes Houdini unique to speak on the topic of spiritualism is that early in his career, he was a medium for a time. In the introduction of his book, 
he reflects on the experience. Quote, At the time, I appreciated the fact that I surprised my clients. But while aware of the fact that I was deceiving them, I did not see or understand the seriousness of trifling with such sacred sentimentality and the baneful result which inevitably followed. After delving deep, I realized the seriousness of it all, of trifling with the hallowed reverence in which the average human being bestows upon the departed. And while I personally became afflicted with a similar grief, I was chagrined that I had been guilty of such frivolity, and for the first time realized that it bordered on a crime. As a consequence, my own mental attitude became considerably more plastic. I, too, would have parted gladly with a large share of my earthly possessions for the solace of one word from my loved departed. Just one word that I was sure had been genuinely bestowed by them. And so I was brought to a full consciousness of the sacredness of the thought. End quote. Houdini, surely like all magicians, enjoyed surprising others through deceit a term he chose to emphasize while simultaneously juxtaposing it to the consecrated grounds of pain and loss felt by a personal death. He recognized the financial and material value a grieving person, including himself, would give for a single, genuine word from beyond the grave of a departed loved one. When it was his turn to finally feel true loss, he recognized that the manipulation of someone's emotions during this time of weakness should be a crime. He believed in this so passionately that in 1926, Houdini stood before Congress to encourage the passing of the Copeland Bloom Bill, which would make fortune-telling illegal in Washington, D.C. To Houdini, he wanted to clearly delineate that going to a magic show, where a magician openly deceives for the purposes of entertainment, was clearly different than attending a seance, where a spiritualist medium secretly deceives for the purpose of closure. While magicians openly admit that a true member of their group will never reveal a trick, a medium will solemnly proclaim that there is no trick at all. Both magicians and mediums charge a fee, but Houdini unequivocally states that it is the act of claiming deception as truth that is wrong, and that many people have been duped to ruin by the deception of spiritualist mediums. The congressional hearings on the Copeland-Bloom bill in 1926 read almost like a comedic play as New York representative and sponsor of the bill, Saul Bloom, repeatedly had to fight for Houdini to speak and for his colleagues to take the subject seriously. Here's an excerpt from the transcript between Mr. Bloom and a Mr. Reed. Bloom says, The idea of giving advice is one thing. The idea of telling a fortune is another. Where Mr. Reed responds, what is telling a fortune? 
Well, telling a fortune is to make people believe what the future is, to give you a picture that you are going to marry a blonde. How do you know you won't? I want to tell you something. I am serious about this thing, and I don't want any kidding or joking from you. That is the sad part of it. Discussion often eddied into minutiae about the placements of commas in the bill, who had authority to let who speak, and conflating mediumship with other forms of entertainment and religion. When Harry Houdini finally was allowed to speak, he made a general statement concerning spiritualism. Quote, This is positively no attack upon religion. Please understand that, emphatically, I am not attacking a religion, but this thing called spiritualism, where a medium intercommunicates with the dead, is a fraud from start to finish. There are only two kinds of mediums, those who are mental degenerates and who ought to be under observation, and those who are deliberate cheats and frauds. In 35 years, I have never seen one genuine medium. Millions of dollars are stolen every year in America, and the government has never paid attention to it because they look upon it as a religion. End quote. The hearings were packed with spiritualists of all types, including fortune tellers, astrologers, and mediums, all adamantly against the passing of the bill. Some even tried to encourage changing the bill to protect them, a tactic often used by lobbyists against regulation bills today. Newspapers reported that never has there been so much disorder in the House District Committee room as arguments for and against the bill were raucously lobbed from mediums, politicians, and skeptics alike. While Houdini was very serious about the importance of passing the bill, he brought his usual dramatic flair as well. He announced that he could easily defraud Washington, D.C. of a quarter of a million dollars alone because there were no laws prohibiting him from calling his magic supernatural. Houdini demonstrated that he, too, could produce the ever-popular slate writings. He gave a dictionary and a card to Representative Hammer of North Carolina and told him to drop a card in any page. Then, he showed off a pair of handheld chalkboards, demonstrated that they were real, and put them together. Following this, Houdini dramatically called upon spirits to write the page Representative Hammer had dropped the card in the dictionary, and then pulled the slates apart. Reading from the slate, Houdini correctly identified the page and words where Hammer had dropped the card in the dictionary. Immediately after, Houdini invoked the spirits of George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, akin to Kate Fox's invocation of Benjamin Franklin's spirit writing, to give specific details about a letter received by a random member of the audience that had never met Houdini. The audience member, a woman by the name of Mrs. Khan, admitted that Houdini had just announced intimate facts about her life that she did not share with him. Upon the conclusion of these demonstrations, one of the mediums there to speak against the bill called out, He is demonstrating that he is a spiritualist! 
Despite Houdini's adamance that he was not a spiritualist and was only exposing spiritualism as fraudulent, just as he had been doing already for years, this idea that he secretly was still a spiritualist anyway was sitting in the back of the minds of many. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was invoked at the hearing on more than one occasion as an authority on spiritualism. And here's part of the transcript between uh, Houdini and a Mr. MacLeod. Houdini says, Conan Doyle is not an outstanding authority on spiritualism. He is accepted as one of the best. No, he is not accepted as one of the best. He is one of the greatest dupes outside of Sir Oliver Lodge. Conan Doyle stated that I possessed mediumistic powers, which I deny. How can you prove it? I admit I do not possess mediumistic powers. They claim in London, Psychic College, I dematerialize my body and that I ooze through and come out again and put myself together. That's Hewitt McKenzie. How do you do it? I do it like anybody else would do it. There is nothing secret about it. We are all humans. Nobody is supernormal. We are all born alike. Houdini was challenged by a representative of the house to prove that he did not have supernatural powers, a perfect setup for an early 20th century comedy sketch. How does one prove one does not have supernatural powers? This was not the only time Houdini had to defend his natural humanity in the congressional hearings, and it was the second time he had to insist that we are all born alike. When asked if he ever tried to test the truth of mediums, he alluded to his $10,000 challenge, where if any medium could perform something that he couldn't recreate, he would pay them the money. He had exposed countless mediums in this way. He also called out to the gallery of spiritualist mediums in the crowd and challenged any of them to elucidate the pet names his mother or father had given him as a child and then even threw down a crumpled telegram and challenged any of them to read its contents. Silence was the only response from the Congregation of Clairvoyance. After Houdini demonstrated the illusions of the slate tricks with Representative Hammer and the intimate knowledge of a stranger with Mrs. Kahn, Houdini explained a profound interaction he had with President Theodore Roosevelt. Quote, Incidentally, President Roosevelt and I were on board the Imperator, and I did this for him, and he asked me, was it spiritualism? When a great brain like Colonel Roosevelt asks that, there must be protection for those who cannot protect themselves. I said, no, Colonel, it is all hocus-pocus. End quote. After Houdini was accused of being a spiritualist during the hearing, he was asked to explain how he did it. And while he admitted that he could not reveal precisely how the trick worked, being a magician at all, he did explain certain levels of deception he implemented, including listening to a conversation held by Mrs. Khan, whom he had chosen to use as the subject of his trick. 
but when Representative Hammer pressed him for how he did the dictionary trick on him, Houdini's answer was plain enough. Mr. Hammer said, The lady suggests you are a spiritualist and don't know it. I want you to tell how you got the writing on the slate. It will not take you but a minute. And Houdini replied, I forced the pages on you to put the card in a certain place, pretended you had a free choice, and you did not. I had them written on slates before. See? A pair of mediums also spoke to oppose the passing of the Copeland-Bloom bill that Houdini was so earnest in supporting. The first was Jane B. Coates the one who accused Houdini of being a spiritualist during his demonstration. And the other was Grace Marcia, who had been known to service Washington's elite, including Supreme Court justices, members of Congress, and the previous First Lady, Laura Harding. Houdini was aware that these two mediums were coming to oppose the bill, and he deployed his secret service to Washington in the days leading up to the congressional hearing. Houdini's secret service was a team of people who would always travel ahead of Houdini to wherever he was going to do a show and attend well-known medium seances within the city. Being far more privy to the tricks of the trade than they let on, the team would report back to Houdini, who would then expose the medium's tricks as fraudulent by recreating it on stage during one of his shows. The congressional hearings were no different. Houdini brought to the stand one of the most talented members of his team, Rose Mackenberg to testify her personal encounter with the mediums Madame Marcia and Madame Coates. Mackenberg had encountered over 1,000 mediums in her time and was recognized as an expert on the topic. She would often dress in an array of outfits to disguise herself as she attended the variety of medium seances. Both Marcia and Coates had charged Mackenberg a fee of $10 and went on to tell her things that were not at all true, including information about her non-existent husband and children. Mackenberg went on to shock the audience when she relayed how Madame Coates had claimed that multiple members of the Senate already attended spiritualist seances, including Senators Capper, Watson, and Fletcher. She had told Mackenberg that she had lobbied 22 members of the Senate and that 16 were entirely in favor of spiritualism. The biggest news was when Mackenberg stated that Coates acknowledged that even President Calvin Coolidge regularly held seances in the White House. At this point, the hearing burst into an uproar with Madame Coates repeatedly asking to defend herself, and the room was told multiple times to quiet down for order. Despite the revelations of Houdini and Mackenberg to Congress, the Copeland-Bloom bill did not pass into law for reasons that were never entirely clear. Arguments were made that this law stepped too closely to infringement on religious rights, despite a similar law being successful in New York, while other arguments insisted that it did not pass due to the many high-level officials within Washington already visiting spiritualist mediums. 
The topic has never since been brought up in Congress again, so thoroughly as it had been during the Copeland-Bloom bill. And so America's greatest debate on spiritualism was largely forgotten. While Houdini would go on to die later that same year, Rose Mackenberg continued to expose fraudulent mediums for decades to come. She famously was brought into a 1939 Pennsylvania court case regarding the will of a man named August T. Lockwood, who had bequeathed a large sum of money to Lilydale. The state of Pennsylvania wanted to invalidate the will because it encouraged criminal behavior. And Mackenberg was called as the star witness and helped Pennsylvania win the case. However, it was subsequently appealed, and Lilydale ultimately received Lockwood's money. So, Lilydale still exists today, and in the next section, we're going to learn a little bit more about what it's like to have an experience at Lilydale. Chapter 6, Part 8, Present Spiritualism Artifacts from the Fox Sisters can still be visited today. At the Rochester Historical Society, you can visit the Fox Sisters' table, which was used during their seances. Equipped inside the table was a hidden, human-made device capable of knocking against the wood, giving the perception that nothing is there. I have a picture of the table in the book. Guests would pay to sit around the table and hear the spirits knock their answers back to their questions, gladly paying their share of earthly possessions for a genuine word bestowed by their lost loved ones. Skeptics and spiritualists alike are fascinated by the table. Skeptics for the fact that it proves that the Fox sisters were defrauding their customers, while spiritualists recognize it as a relic used by the founders of their religious movement. In the same way Millerite denominations look back on the Great Disappointment as an artifact of being a beginning rather than an end, so, too, spiritualists look on to artifacts from the Fox Sisters as the origin of something profound. The Fox Sisters' original home in Hydesville also became a sacred destination for spiritualists, especially after the finding of the purported skeleton of the peddler, the original spirit to speak to the sisters. But, it had been found that the skeleton inside the home was also a fake. The house was physically moved 150 miles west to Lilydale, where it could be visited until the middle of the 20th century when it burned down. Today, anyone can visit the grounds of where the house once stood in Lilydale or in its original location in Hydesville because both are marked as important locations. But the largest artifact of spiritualism that exists today is Lilydale itself. Within Lilydale, a variety of quaint Victorian-styled homes offer personalized medium sessions for a price. 
Across the village, there are around 50 registered mediums that can be visited any time. But they also bring in renowned guest mediums from all around the world. Visitors also come from far and wide, carrying with them a variety of beliefs. And Lilydale truly does welcome each without judgment. No one is pressured to come to Lilydale or to pay for a reading. They happily offer a money-back guarantee if a guest feels their reading was not genuine. Whether or not spiritualism was founded on a trio of fraudulent sisters, there is still something that continues to draw people to Lilydale over 150 years after its founding. Houdini seemed to believe that the valuable aspect of spiritualism wasn't in the genuine ability of the medium, but rather it lay in the desperate hope to reconnect to a loved one by their customers. In the HBO documentary, No One Dies in Lilydale, a Chicago police officer was repeatedly wonderstruck at the spiritualist medium's abilities to contact his son after his tragic death. To him, they seemed to have knowledge about his son's life and death that he didn't believe they could know, such as items sitting around him at his funeral, or words of meaning to both him and his father. But as the officer attended further sessions, the message that mostly came across from the mediums was about how the death of his son was quick and painless, how he loved his parents, and how he wanted his parents to accept that where he was now is okay and that they can move on. A woman in this documentary, an evangelical Christian from California who also lost her son, came to Lilydale for the same purpose. At one point, the officer and her sit down and share stories of their children together, their unfulfilled plans, their lost potential, their unique personality traits. Paying homage to the lives of their children and respecting that the other was doing the same. It was a moment of mutual understanding, an understanding that only another parent who has experienced the same thing could comprehend. Another woman from Ohio came to find out more information about her husband's sudden death. It was clear that each member chosen to be followed by HBO was grieving, some for many years after a tragic loss. Moving forward from a loss can seem impossible because it implies a sort of forgetting, not the sort of forgetting where a person completely disappears from memory, but a more nuanced sort, one where the survivor needs to forge a new post-mortem identity and existence. But the mere notion of forgetting a single thing after the death of a person who meant so much in life becomes repugnant. And yet, every day, memories silently disappear. The person's scent, their smile, pieces of their personality begin to slip away. And... It makes the survivor even more vigilant to cling even stronger to what memories do remain. A step back in time to Lilydale, adorned in its small-town Victorian charm, seems to be a last hope for those trying to move forward without letting go. For whatever circumstances lead one to Lilydale, there is still the underlying concern about the authenticity of the experience, 
But this is where Lily Dale's encouragement of skepticism comes into play. The Ohio woman who lost her husband came out of one session and told her friends that she did not believe anything the medium told her, and that some of the things he said to her were opposite of what was true. She said she continued going along with it, but she couldn't wait to get out of there, often the very same way a victim might describe abuse. Her friends encouraged her to try someone different before giving up. The evangelical from California sensed that a part of the place didn't feel right, like everyone was allowing themselves to be tricked, mentioning how everyone reinforced belief in the same way they do at a Disney theme park, stating, It seems like everyone wants to make it real. One medium told her that her son died quickly when his death truly dragged on for years. She challenged the medium on this and was responded to with words of encouragement regarding her skepticism and personal beliefs, catching the customer off guard, making it hard to argue with her despite having just caught the medium in a lie. The encouragement of challenging the mediums is disarming for the customer, and any customer is welcome to see a sort of spiritualist counselor to help visitors feel comfortable with challenging the mediums. The Ohio woman sat down with one man associated with the Lilydale Assembly and was uncomfortable bringing up her skepticism over her prior reading. The Lilydale member listened and encouraged her to speak up when she felt this way and stressed the importance of receiving the right message. This was enough to encourage her to try another medium. This time, the medium declared that her husband was struck dead by lightning even though the official cause of death was never determined. When her friends asked her how she felt after the second session, she seemed to hold some of her feelings inside, but said that regardless of whether the medium was right, she felt it was time for her to move on. The method of supporting the challenging of mediums seems to work for Lilydale in multiple ways. For those who do not believe they are receiving a genuine message, they are still allowed to express themselves. But even more, this allows the mediums of Lilydale to both potentially collect more information from the person, quite possibly even from the spiritualist counselor they see, to conjure up a message that will suit them. This increases the chances that people walk away from Lilydale believing they had a supernatural communication. But not all visitors have negative experiences. The Chicago officer had heartfelt conversations with his ex-wife about the revelations brought forth from several mediums about their son, passing messages on to her that were shared from the beyond. Both the officer and his ex-wife asserted their firm belief in spiritualism. While spiritualists intentionally leave their beliefs broad and inclusive, not everyone sees spiritualism as working within their beliefs. Often, protests are staged outside of the gates of Lilydale, which the inhabitants respond to by demonstrating that they are peaceful and don't harm anyone. But the protesters that come to Lilydale aren't protesting because they're fraudulent, at least not in the sense Houdini claimed spiritualism to be, but to protest that Lilydale is satanic or demonic. Just like in Salem, Massachusetts, 
they are accused of being witches by some Christian fundamentalists. It is a place haunted by evil spirits actively working against the light of Christ. In the HBO documentary, the evangelical from California rebelled against Lilydale from the inside. In a confrontation with one medium, she proclaimed her faith in Jesus, and later on secretly climbed up the inspiration stump, the center of power for Lilydale spiritualists, and declared it in the name of Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, Part 9 A Common Delusion Although he was a believer in God, Houdini did not embrace spiritualism for a very different reason than the religious fundamentalists who protest Lilydale. Houdini understood that mediumship has always been a form of deception, much in the same way that magic is. What he didn't realize was the magnitude of power that deception held, until an exchange he had with a then world-famous actress named Sarah Bernhardt, who had lost her leg after her rise to fame. Houdini had performed some magic for her, and afterwards they were talking, when she plaintively asked if he could bring her leg back for her. Houdini recounts his incredulity in his book, feeling that surely this esteemed actress would understand that the work he did was not in genuine miracles, but an act of deception. Quote, We looked at each other. She, the travel-worn, experienced woman of the world. I, the humble mystifier, nonplussed and thunderstruck at the extraordinary, unintended compliment she was paying me. End quote. He asked her if she was serious about him bringing back her leg, and she replied that she had never been more serious about anything in her life. Like the exchange between Roosevelt, this made Houdini realize how dangerous deception can be to those who do not understand it. Quote, How little the world at large understands my methods by which my mysteries are produced, and also shows how easy it is for even a great intellect, faced with a mystery it cannot fathom, to conclude that there is something supernatural involved. End quote. Houdini illustrates the lengths of belief that one will go when filled with a sense of longing. Houdini's experience with Sarah Bernhardt and later on Theodore Roosevelt had led him to proclaim that when people can't comprehend something, it becomes intuitive to attribute it to a supernatural cause. And there is modern evidence on Houdini's revelation. Psychologists have found that humans are predisposed to belief and searching for meaning in the world around them. When things happen, people tend to search for meaning behind the event and attribute that meaning to something greater than what occurred on the surface. It helps with coping and feeling connected to the greater world despite the baffling nature of the universe. And the loss of loved ones especially when it's unexpected, 
continues to have people search for meaning in their losses. Searching for meaning in death was commonly practiced by the Haudenosaunee as well, proving it a human characteristic. Questioning one's beliefs can quickly lead to the fear of the unknown. It causes an existential crisis, forcing people to face hard questions such as how much of our world is made up of normalized, predictable order, and how much of it is made up from anxiety-wrenching chaos. In order to prevent a constant existential meltdown, all humans must put their belief into something. Faith is not an act solely for the religious, but an attribute every person depends upon for their daily functioning. Believing in something, no matter how silly or how practical, can ground a person and make them feel safe again, if only for a moment. String enough of these moments together, and it's easy to forget how close our world sits to indomitable chaos. Is it then so wrong for there to be a place dedicated to respectfully tricking their customers for the benefit of helping them cope? money-back guarantees, spiritual counselors who support skepticism, and intentions meant to heal can ultimately seem perfectly victimless. But things can get bizarre. Lilydale is composed largely of mediums who practice their craft with no observable evidence. There are also still some physical demonstrations that take place on the grounds as well. One woman contacts the spirit world by having spirits bend spoons, the sort of trick one could witness in a magic show, but not the sort of connection one could expect from a lost world of souls pining to reconnect with their previous life. Some people prefer not knowing they are being deceived because it ruins it for them. When the spirit healers of Lilydale cut open peppers and, without touching their body, trace the outline of the visitors, or when a medium declares with an unknowable certainty that their loved one died painlessly, the visitors only need to believe that these things are true in hopes of potentially invoking the Hail Mary of healing, the placebo effect. Sometimes, all it takes is the mere belief of experiencing something to actually benefit from it. The support and encouragement Lilydale provides to visitors that chose to challenge what the mediums say can often help the visitors face their own fears and beliefs in a supportive and nurturing environment in the hope of helping them move forward. But not everyone leaves Lilydale satisfied with their experience. Oftentimes, people leave confused with more questions than answers, and the Lilydale Assembly invites them back to further explore these thoughts, and many of them do return, still lost and stuck, trying to understand how their deceased loved one wants them to move forward. Also, People with fringe beliefs tend to connect with one another at Lilydale. In the documentary, two men fall into agreement over their beliefs in aliens and UFOs, one of which claimed to be an abductee. For some, Lilydale might be a destination of closure for those who can't move forward with their life, but 
it's also apparent that one can stay too long at Lilydale as well. A person can become trapped, waiting for the next garbled broadcast from the spirit world to send them ambiguous messages of hope, fear, love, joy, or sadness. This empty transmission being delivered for the price of one session at a time, just as Kate Fox did with Charles Livermore. It was this very trap Houdini warned about when he decried spiritualism. Houdini dedicated large parts of his life to being skeptical of spiritualism and debunking its famed mediums. Scientific American magazine created a panel of skeptics, which Houdini sat on, and any medium who could convince the panel of their true ability would win a prize. One such medium, named Mina Crandon, almost won the prize, but was figured out by Houdini. Houdini's $10,000 challenge was never won by any medium. Determined to once and for all prove spiritualism as false, Houdini made a pact with his wife that if he were to die before her, that he would come back and contact her with a certain secret coded message, similar to the pacts he made with several others throughout his life. But this time, it was going to be him communicating back through the void. So, when Houdini's death occurred in 1926, at the age of 52 and shortly after the Copeland-Bloom Bill hearings ended, it led to the beginning of what is remembered as the Houdini seances. Medium after medium attempted to contact Bess Houdini's husband and failed to produce the secret message necessary for evidence of a true spirit world connection. But then, suddenly, it happened. In 1928, Bess acknowledged that a medium by the name of Arthur Ford had delivered the message that Houdini had promised. Finally, it appeared that spiritualism was vindicated at last. Definitive proof from beyond the grave had finally come, and from no one less than its most outspoken critic. This revelation should have sparked a highly funded scientific investigation into the matter. Bess had even given a written statement declaring Ford's accomplishment. But, as the facts unfolded, it was later determined that the handwriting of the statement was not hers, but merely the signature. Bess admitted to being ill and in a low state at the time she signed Ford's confession. Unable to move on from the death of her husband, she succumbed to the allure of Arthur Ford. Quote, there was a time when I wanted intensely to hear from Harry. I was ill, both physically and mentally, and such was my eagerness for spiritualists to prey upon my mind and make me believe that they had really heard from him. End quote. Bess later put out a statement that no medium had ever contacted her husband, and eventually she stopped holding the seances altogether. The predatory nature of mediums towards those struggling with a tragic loss was the reason Houdini dedicated his life to exposing them, and in the end, it was his own wife who fell prey to it. Once again, 
it was the loss of a loved one that lay at the tragic center of another spiritualist spectacle. And once again, fraud corroded at the edges of the religious movement's authenticity. In the words of Maggie Fox from her major 1888 reveal of spiritualism at the New York Academy of Music, spiritualism was a common delusion. Chapter 7, Moral Intellectualism at the Chautauqua Institution. Part 1, The Meaning of Place. Lilydale is an example of the sort of place where people come together when feeling lost in this earthly world, often overwhelmed with feelings of grief, anguish, isolation, and a need for closure. Each summer, Lilydale's 30,000 visitors, adrift in their own tragedy or steeped in their search for meaning, make connections with other visitors and residents in ways that often resemble the mystifying ephemeral readings by the mediums themselves. One moment, a glimmer of hope, closure, connection, or understanding. The next moment, it's all gone crashing back to the world of the living with the unbreachable dimensions of space and time firmly back in place, leaving only the familiar, aching sense of loss. Lilydale is nestled in the time-forgotten wilderness of western New York, where spirits lovingly and languishingly haunt the grounds. The place seems almost straight out of a fairy tale, and can almost give the sense of believing in the impossible. Then, not even 20 miles southwest, another community exists that stands in almost direct contrast to Lilydale, the Chautauqua Institution. The Chautauqua Institution sits along its namesake lake, the most prominent in the county. Lake Chautauqua was named by the Erie tribe and the meaning of which is disputed. The long, deep lake resembles the famous Finger Lakes back east where the public universal friend established their community, but was formed under a completely different geological process. And it was here, along these shores, perfect for recreation and fishing, the Chautauqua Lake Sunday School Assembly was formed to educate Sunday school teachers across America's young nation. It was this assembly that would eventually turn these lakeside grounds into what has been called an American utopia. The Chautauqua Lake Sunday School Assembly was started by John Hale Vincent, a Methodist minister, and Lewis Miller, a philanthropic inventor. John Hale Vincent was an internationally recognized minister interested in the development of Sunday schools and ran at least three periodicals on the subject across the country. 
Sunday schools began in 18th century England as an Anglican response to the Industrial Revolution, where child labor was rampant. Sunday often was the only day children could get away from their work and receive some education. Sunday school was created out of a moral imperative to educate children with fundamental knowledge when they had no other means to get it. The practice of Sunday schools weaved its way across America so that by the end of the 19th century, even non-religious parents were sending their children to it. Sunday school remained popular even as public schooling became the norm and regulations on businesses cut back on child labor. John Hale Vincent was at the helm of this wildly popular movement in America during the late 19th century. And for his part, Lewis Miller invented the Buckeye Mower and Reaper, which was the prototype for the modern combine harvester still used in agriculture today. Lewis was a Methodist who believed firmly in education, and as his wealth grew, he involved himself with the school board and the Methodist Sunday School in Akron, Ohio. Later, his daughter would go on to marry the famed inventor Thomas Edison. As a brilliant inventor himself, Miller would ultimately be inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame with 92 patents. Miller then turned his inventive mind on how to improve Sunday school, which eventually resulted in the Akron Plan, a new layout for Sunday schools which included a central assembly surrounded by smaller classrooms. I have an image of the Akron Plan in my book. The idea was that at the beginning of each session, there would be an opening ceremony in the large assembly area and then the children could be broken up by age into the various surrounding rooms and return at the end with a closing exercise. The Akron Plan was a resounding success in the Sunday School universe and was adopted across a variety of Protestant faiths in the U.S. and Great Britain. This is probably familiar still to anyone who attends Sunday School. Then, in 1874... Miller turned to John Hale Vincent for his next project, a retreat for Sunday school teachers. With the successful Akron plan close at heart, Miller and Vincent went on to create the Chautauqua Lake Sunday School Assembly to educate Sunday school teachers during the only season they had off from the children, summer. A short time later, the name became the Chautauqua Institution and has remained so since. Miller and Vincent recognized that enriching the skills and knowledge of Sunday school teachers would in turn have the same effect on countless children across the nation. Chautauqua was founded on the concepts of morality, faith, knowledge, and education. In the following year, President Grant came to visit to see for himself the new grounds that were built to strengthen America's knowledge and faith. By complete happenstance, Vincent had been President Grant's pastor years before either had gained national fame. 
When Grant heard Vincent had invited him, he immediately accepted and arrived at Chautauqua in a star-spangled yacht, followed by a curious flotilla attempting to glimpse America's leader and Civil War hero. At the Chautauqua Institution, President Grant relaxed, had private discussions with Lewis Miller, enjoyed some lectures, and was given a Bible as a gift. Afterward, Grant recalled his trip with the utmost fondness, and suddenly the popularity of the two-year-old Chautauqua Institution began its meteoric rise to fame. Chapter 7, Part 2, A Home for Moral Leadership Ulysses S. Grant was not the only president to have visited Chautauqua either. Theodore Roosevelt had visited several times as governor of New York and during his presidency, where he gave speeches in the Hall of Christ. Teddy Roosevelt adored members of Chautauqua calling them a gathering that is typically American in that it is typical of America at its best. In 1936, regular Chautauqua attendee Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his famous I Hate War speech from Chautauqua. Quote, I have seen war on land and sea. I have seen blood running from the wounded. I have seen men coughing out their gassed lungs. I have seen the dead in the mud. I have seen cities destroyed. I have seen 200 limping, exhausted men come out of line, the survivors of a regiment of 1,000 that went forward 48 hours before. I have seen children starving. I have seen the agony of mothers and wives. I hate war." End quote. In preparation for a debate with Bob Dole in 1996, Bill Clinton gave his weekly radio speech from the Chautauqua Institution. In the speech, he focused on American social fabric, his zero-tolerance policies, anti-drug campaigns, limiting cigarette marketing, and the decrease in teen pregnancies as examples of America's growing moral strength. William McKinley, William Howard Taft, and Gerald Ford have also spoken at Chautauqua. Chautauqua not only has attracted presidents from both political parties, but has held a superstar cachet of historical speakers and performers, including Booker T. Washington, Susan B. Anthony, John Philip Sousa, Jacob Reese, Amelia Earhart, Nelson Rockefeller, Robert Kennedy, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, Thurgood Marshall, Sandra Day O'Connor, Eli Wiesel, Steve Martin, Al Gore, and countless more. Since its inception, famous individuals from all different disciplines, backgrounds, and creeds have come to speak at perform for, and attend Miller and Vincent's creation for America. Neither Miller nor Vincent went to college and both strongly felt that everyone should have the opportunity to get an education. 
They believed in the importance of having an educated electorate for America's democracy to succeed. This started the Chautauqua Literacy and Scientific Circles, which today calls itself as the world's oldest continually running book club. Anyone, but traditionally women, looking to further educate themselves on a variety of topics, joined the book club, and then later attended the summer programs at the Chautauqua Institution. It was a Methodist belief that women needed to be more educated than men because they would be weaving the social fabric of the country. These book circles began to gain popularity across the nation, and it wasn't long before totally independent Little C Chautauquas were sprouting up all over the country. Like Kleenex replacing the word for tissues and Google replacing the term for search engine, Chautauqua became an independent name used to describe gatherings to strengthen the mind and spirit. In an era where the dissemination of knowledge was scarce, Chautauquas became a national adult education movement. There's not quite a modern equivalent to the 19th century Chautauquas, but one could make a loose comparison to TED Talks, which have also inspired local chapters and promotes learning. Like TED Talks, Chautauquas consisted of leaders from a variety of backgrounds that came together in one location to share their ideas, insights, art, entertainment, or knowledge. Average people would attend to learn from these leaders or to share experiences of their own. Hundreds of Chautauquas popped up everywhere and were so popular they began to travel between cities and the countryside, pulling in people everywhere they went. Around 150 locations across the country created permanent replicas of the original Chautauqua Institution to celebrate arts, sciences, recreation, and faith. The Chautauqua Institution started at a time where many Americans knew how to read, but very few were able to get a hold of a wide variety of books. The isolated pockets of people in the vast wilderness of 19th century America would attend Chautauquas to see intellectually stimulating, thought-provoking, and cutting-edge information of the time. Chautauquas filled the same need as the Lyceum during the antebellum years of America, which drew sober, secular audiences to listen to intellectual lectures, debates, and discussions. Chautauquas offered more than the Lyceum by promoting a productive use of arts and leisure. At the Chautauqua Institution, there is emphasis on the importance of taking time to reflect and relax to stimulate the creative and intellectual mind. But as radio, moving pictures, and libraries grew, Chautauquas began to drastically disappear. America discarded Chautauquas so rapidly that the original Chautauqua Institution was on the verge of complete shutdown by the 1930s at the height of the Great Depression. It survived just barely, and post-World War II America had all but forgotten Chautauquas to embrace a faster-paced, generally more shallow lifestyle. 
Even so, the Chautauqua Institution was able to continue its role as a center of American moral intellectualism and continues to draw big names into the 21st century, receiving between 100,000 and 150,000 visitors annually, dwarfing the number of those who attend in nearby Lilydale. The original Chautauqua Institution is not the last remaining Chautauqua either as multiple other locations exist in a dozen states across the country, each still drawing large crowds annually for over 100 years. Chapter 7, Part 3, All Denominational while some similarities can be drawn between a TED Talk and the Chautauqua Institution, the atmosphere of the two gatherings have vast differences. Idyllic Victorian homes, not unlike the ones in nearby Lilydale, force visitors into an historic landscape. Cars are not allowed across large portions of the institution, giving children more freedom to roam without danger as people go about their activities. Relaxation, reading, class-taking, practice huts, art installments, and music are found across the grounds daily. Today, Chautauqua takes pride in the ways that it forces visitors to slow down, unplug, and reflect in this age of overwhelming information. While TED Talks embrace the fast-paced lifestyle and technology of the day. When it began, Lewis Miller stated that Chautauqua will not be non-denominational. It will be all-denominational. With this foundation, the role of religion wasn't used primarily to dictate doctrines or beliefs, but instead was intended to be explored, questioned, and reflected over. Interfaith discussions and lectures have become a focus of the Chautauqua Institution. The institution has established formal relationships with a variety of Christian denominations, including Catholicism, and has even branched out of Christianity to other faiths like Judaism. Other beliefs, including non-believers, are also welcome and do exist within the community. The Chautauqua Institution doesn't focus primarily on the abstract religious beliefs, but instead, people come together to discuss how to utilize their faith to help them overcome and solve real-life issues. Topics such as how to cope with pain left by the loss of a loved one, to how to best handle end-of-life care are examples of the nuance that the Chautauqua Institution embraces in an honest and serious way that Lilydale just doesn't. These discussions highlight the fact that knowing what the right thing to do in certain situations can be hard. But by openly discussing them and bringing different perspectives together from different faiths Religion can be used to help everyone move forward better. What happened in the United States where acceptance of a variety of faiths has stopped being the predominant way of guiding conversation about faith? 
Despite its inclusive and storied history, Chautauqua has been criticized for still having significant diversity issues. While representatives from other religions can be found throughout, Chautauqua is primarily a Protestant Christian institution that can sometimes feel pretentiously white. But when compared to other religiously founded institutions, Chautauqua has embodied a broad spirit of openness in discussions, debates, and lectures on secularly important information that is just unrivaled. While a Finian fervor for Christ is often encouraged in a variety of Protestant denominations, Chautauqua uniquely holds the secular just as sacred as the religious. Religion, in all its forms, can suddenly become dogmatic and draconian, while the secular can sometimes feel like the moral compass is left spinning wildly. The Chautauqua Institution mostly focuses on using religion openly as a form of direction to encourage conversation rather than avoiding it. It forces us to challenge our way of thinking and learn from others in a way that doesn't just block them out wholesale as wrong-headed. Facts are meant to inform belief, not the other way around. Chautauqua prides itself for not simplifying religion into distinct boxes of right and wrong, but instead encourages further discussion, insight, and understanding. The institution has tried to embrace true solutions to real problems. They bring in a wide variety of speakers and guests whose expertise and personal beliefs are not conflated. People come to improve themselves in a variety of ways through arts, education, religion, and recreation, the institution's four foundations. Chautauqua has successfully brought people together to discuss important topics and learn from each other for generations. They really support and facilitate musicians and artists, and they really do get meaningful and powerful people to speak and disseminate knowledge. While only 17 miles away in Lilydale, almost nothing seems real, at the Chautauqua Institution, Everything is very real. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires 
hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.